Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Amen. Take your Bible. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4. I've entitled the uh, sermon today, Love Not the World. It comes right from the beloved apostle, his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. We'll look at that later. But Genesis chapter 4, we've been doing kind of a mini-series as a part of our summer sermon series in the book of Genesis. We looked at... uh, you know, dinosaurs, and how does the word have anything to say about that? And then we considered cavemen and ape men, and how does that fit in? I mean, we hear a lot about them, we, and all that kind of thing, and uh, and we wonder about that kind of thing. And your children, grandchildren, are get inundated with that. How do you think about that biblically? And if you don't think about it biblically, it's going to undermine the word of God, and it's going to rob uh, your children from uh, trusting in God's only book. There are millions and millions of books, but there's only one book that is the book of all books. It's the Holy Bible. Holy means distinct, means one of a kind. Not only purity, but it is. But more than that, the primary meaning of holy is distinction. It is the book of all books. You know, it's the number one published book year after year in the world, the Bible. Uh, God's, uh, God's wonderful word. Well, today we're going to pick it up in Genesis, and in Genesis chapter four, and, uh, and let's 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 read. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but this is really the context that we're going to develop today. Uh, Adam and Eve. Let me give you the setting. In chapter three, uh, committed sin, the first sin, and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and now they're outside looking in. Oh, the regrets! Oh man, I'm telling you, live life with few regrets. We all have regrets, right? We're sinners, saved by grace. God is working in us. Now, here's the thing. Aim to have fewer regrets. Oh, the regrets of Adam and Eve. They looked over their shoulder. They drove away, looked in the rearview mirror. There's paradise. Why is it behind them and not in the midst of them? Because of sin. And that's where we are in Genesis chapter 4. They're outside the garden. They're under the sentence of death now. And the day you eat it, you shall die indeed. And they died spiritually. They began to die physically. They were made to live forever. Did you know that? Our great-great-great-grandparents made to live forever. And you, their progeny. How about that? Well, things change, right? The world went on tilt. God judged. And here we are. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam... Uh, lay or knew, yada, the Hebrew word, he knew his wife Eve, and, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So here's the, the first maternity ward of all times. Here it is, the hospital, just outside of paradise, right? And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man-child. Kind of is the idea here, a man. Now you imagine the shock. Now we have two gals at least that are expecting babies here. And imagine if you were the first one ever to give birth. What was that? Oh, wow. Holy mo! And Adam, his eyes must have popped out too. You know, as uh, I've seen that, been there. Wow. Wow. 
Amen. Are men? Are you glad you're men? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. I saw the film. Nope, not interested. I, it cracks me up. A lot of gals are like, oh, that was so much fun. I'd like to have six or eight, maybe ten. My mother had seven. Wow. Later then, verse 2, let's move on. She gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. Now the years are passing. And, and Cain worked the soil. They're no longer little babies or children. They're men now. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as, as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel. You see, his heart was right. It wasn't just the offering type. We always give that which is the fruit of our labor, and all our labors are different, right? He gave the fruit of his labor, but his heart wasn't right. Hebrews 11 talks on that. But God looked on Abel, his heart was right. But on Cain, his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. Then the Lord, in his mercy, this is God's mercy. He's, a, he's going after Cain. Why are you angry? Why, are you, why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Fratricide. It's no wonder we're in the heap of problem we're in, right? The very first one ever born was a murderer. Oh, my. Killed his brother. Hmm. He was the first, Abel was the first one to die. In the day you shall eat, you shall die. He's the first one to die. Struck him with a stone, put him down on the ground. That must have, you know, the first time to see manslaughter. You know, like, you know, at the breath of his life left him. There he lays, lifeless. You can imagine kind of, kind of, kind of seeing that. Well, the Lord said to Cain in verse 9, where's your brother Abel? I mean, notice the, have you ever studied the questions of the Bible? First question God asked was, uh, Adam, where are, where are you? Now, God wasn't looking for information Trying to raise, <laughs> he's not like, I don't see you here. It's not hide and seek. No, he's raising in his heart what you did was evil. And now it's time to be confronted by it. And now here's the second question we've got. Uh, uh, he said, uh, uh, where is your brother Abel? Well, again, he's not seeking information. Uh, and look at, look at Cain's response. I don't know. He's a liar now. So he's a murderer. He's a liar. That's why there's not much hope for us, right? Intuitively. He said, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? What a statement that is. The Lord Jesus shouting out for the echoes of generations. Yes, you are. We are. We are our brother's keeper. There ought to be the great characters of love among God's people. For all people. Not only for the house of the elect of God's people. Of course, of course. Oh, how they love one another. But for all people. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. And the Lord said, well, what is it you've done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse. and You're driven from the ground, which opened its mouth. Receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. And here's his judgment. Under the curse of God, you'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment... Is more than I can bear. Now, notice he doesn't repent. 
No repentance here. None. He just complains, gripes. You know, I can't take this. It's too much for me. That's Cain. He's, he's unregenerate. He's lost. Um, uh, today, uh, you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, a vagabond. And whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so, and if anyone kills Cain, he'll suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain. Okay, he put a mark. It didn't make him a certain color. Okay, that was horrendously taught. That was craziness. Uh, some thought, well, maybe put the word Yahweh on his forehead. That's, that's imaginative. I don't think that was it. Uh, another said a horn grew out from his forehead. I don't think that was, you know, the forerunner of the unicorn or something. I don't, I don't think so. We, we, we're not told what the mark is. But, uh, so let's leave it at that so that no one, so anyone who had found him wouldn't kill him. So Cain went out. Here it is, verse 16. Cain went out from the Lord's presence, and all that that meant, in his rebellion, and he, he, and he lived in the land of Nod, which uh, Nod means uh, wanderings, east of Eden. That sounds like John Steinbeck's book, right? East of Eden. Uh, and Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch, and Cain was then building a city. So he goes out from the presence of the Lord, and he builds a city, verse 17, and he named it after his son. It was the city of Enoch. To Enoch, he goes on and gives a number of, of generations here. And they had long life. They were genetically very powerful, coming from the original uh, couple, Adam and Eve. And Lamech then married. Now we're down several generations to Lamech now. Maybe seven or 800 years now later, uh, after the events there of Cain and Abel. And he marries two women. He's the first bigamist. So already we're seeing a perversion of what God has designed, a man for a woman, one man for one woman. His wives are named Ada and Zillah, and, uh, and uh, Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father. Now notice what their occupations. Uh, he was the father of those who lived in tents. He raised livestock. His brother's name was uh, Jubal, and he was the father of all who played the harp and flute. And Zillah had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. He was into metallurgy. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. We'll tell you what that means in a minute. And now look at the white space between verse 24 and 25 in your Bible. Because here we have the great divide. Because now in a rush, in good mosaic and Hebrew type literature, you rush to get past the insignificant details to get to where you want to go. Okay, so he rushes through hundreds of years of time with... Uh, with Cain and his progeny, who built a city and all of that, to get now to another family. All right? And that's, uh, 
the great divide, and we pick that up in verse 25. He goes back to Adam now. And Adam lay, or Yada, knew his wife, that's Eve again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth, and incidentally his name means substitute in Hebrew, also had a son named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the, on the name of the Lord, the Shem of Yahweh. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, those couple verses at the end of this chapter, and I did read the whole chapter, uh, verses the front end of it, enormous contrast. And that's where we're going to go today. Love not the world. Well, we are so privileged to live in the United States of America, aren't we? I mean, that we've got a lot of trouble, a lot of this, but I'm telling you, if you've traveled, it's still the best place in all the world to live. The best place. I don't hear that that much, and I want to say that today. Freedom of worship, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. We get to vote. Somebody counts it, if they count the numbers right. And we get to, we get to vote for whoever, right? It's a great, great place, the best of all places. Uh, again, a mid We're often called the great melting pot, and we are. There's no Native American. I mean, there are some, but they came from somewhere, right? Originally, before the rest of us crowded in, it's the great melting pot. Throw it all together, and my my grandparents, my grandfather's family came from the other side of Berlin in 1888. Yeah, their old old, uh, German Lutheran hymnal and Bible, and uh, my mother's uh, family hailed from, from England. She was a Flanders and um, and so on. So yeah, they, they and they've been here a long time, a long time. I, my mother's side, they used to say we're related to Abraham Lincoln. You know, who, you know. Every, I guess everybody is. We're all cousins. Have you ever noticed that? I guess we all are. Uh, not kissing cousins, but we're all cousins. Really, you, you go back far enough, and we we're all. Uh, we are we are uh, a melting pot. Even our national model. Model, right? I even brought a big silver coin. You ever seen one of these? On the back, every coin and every dollar. I give these to my granddaughters now. Sarah says, oh, don't do that. But I love to give these things out. I bought these years ago when they were real cheap. They're not so cheap. E pluribus unum. And all your coins. You well, I, I didn't take Latin, you see. Well, here it is on your sheet, so you wonder what it means. Out of many, that's us Americans, one. One, one people. It's, it's exciting to be a part of such a nation. I will admit, though, today it feels like we're divided people, but there's more that unites us and divides us as a people. Really. Wow. Well, St. Augustine, in writing his book, and I have a copy of it here, City of God, this is a classic. Some of you read that maybe in the university or whatever. The City of God. He's the Bishop of Hippo. He was a grossly immoral man. He lived uh, with prostitutes and hookers, had children and all that. And God wonderfully saved him. He had a godly mother who prayed and prayed for him. He got wonderfully saved. And God so changed and developed that man through the air, he became the bishop of, of Hippo, northern Africa. St. Augustine, one of the great minds of the church. That ought to encourage some of you. You say like, well, I've really made a mess of my life. Well, we all have. Some of us made a bigger mess, but it's all a huge mess, and there's not much difference between it. You say, well, God can't use me. 
this book ought to shout to you that there's, there's hope for all of us. Uh, Augustine's, uh, the city of God. Uh, in that, let me tell you what he's talking about. He tells that there are, are really only two groups of people in the whole world, and that each of these transcends national boundaries. He calls them two cities, or two societies, if you will, or two communities. They're really a city within a city, if you think of it that way. If you go into some of the old cities of the world, uh, Jerusalem or some of the European older cities, you'll find there's an old wall. That's a, oh, that's the old city uh, within, and it's expanded well beyond it. Jerusalem's like that. You've seen that, some of you. The, the city walls there, and then Jerusalem spreads out on the top of that um, Judean highland there. Uh, that's what it is. It's two cities. It's a city within the city, the greater city, and then the smaller city. That's what he's talking about. And each are formed by, by loves, two different loves. The first uh, society or city or community of people is called the earthly in Augustine's writing. It loves itself. It loves itself. It loves everything here and now. It's earthly. It's, it's sensual. It's, uh, it's the here and now, even to the contempt of God. Uh, that's the larger city here in the world in which you and I find ourselves. The second uh, 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 is called the heavenly city, and it uh, loves the Lord. You see, each of these are, are distinct. They have distinct origins. They have distinct developments, distinct characteristics, and distinct destinies. And that's what we're talking about here today. The first, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 4, uh, tells, as we've read of, of man's first civilization as Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Think about what that must mean. He left uh, God in God's influence and sphere. He left the worship. He left the obedience of the God he knew. He left the presence of the Lord and went out and built a city. And built a city. Uh, the, in the first two brothers, Cain and Abel, we see the example of the two humanities, the two cities, the two societies. Uh, Cain, the first one born, uh, went out from the presence of God. And Abel, his brother, prior, before he was killed, loved the Lord, brought an offering and a heart to the Lord that was right. And we see in those two, the very two that were first born, uh, the difference between the two humanities. Well, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord in his city was based on a very simple idea. And it's the world that you and I live in. It's on the TV, it's in the movies, it's in the magazines we read, it's, at the, it's in the music we hear, it's in the universities, it's in the, in, in the culture of our day, and it's the culture around the world. And it's this simple idea, to make, a world, to make the world a comfortable and respectable place to live. The key word, apart from God. That's it. That's it. And that's, that is the simple idea of the first, the earthly city. Every civilization, one man writes since Cain, has been secular and anti-God. Wow. Well, two distinct cities in the world warning us. It's a warning. It's a warning. Make sure you're a part of the right city. 
a community that loves the Lord and seeks to honor and worship and serve him all the days of your life. For we must escape the Canaanic mindset that we were born in. We must. For John said it so well, and I have just a part of it in the quote, for the world and its desires are passing away. But the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Well, the first distinct city. And did you notice in, when we read it that man did not start out like some sort of hominoid, primitive, cave-dwelling, you know, less of a, of a human being than you and I. He was extremely intelligent coming from the first parents from the hand of God. If it's true that you only use 10% of your mind, I dare say he used 100%. In these early generations that lived a long period of time were able to develop music and instruments and metallurgy and agricultural. They weren't berry pickers and they weren't out hunting like semi-savages. Never happened. There have always been both the, the, uh, the educated, the sophisticated, the cultured, and the primitive side by side, depending how far a culture has slipped in their depravity. Always. Always been that. There were men walking on the moon. At the same time, there were people living in caves in parts of the world. Always side by side. We did not generate from that beginning. And Adam was uh, so far superior genetically in every way than you and I. We are a shadow, a shadow of his glory. Yet we are part of his seed and progeny, his family of Adam and Eve. And Eve was called Eve because that's the word for mother. She would be the mother of all who would be born. Well, the Canaanic city is characterized by a secular godlessness. It's a desire for independency. It's the, it's the Rousseau, throw off the chains and just do whatever you want to do. I saw a little clip last night uh, thinking about today on the History Channel, talking about the 60s and the development. And I, I saw, uh, again, oh, they're in San Francisco. And I remember living through that as a, a growing up in the 60s and throwing off all restraints and everything else, a bunch of... Lost, spoiled, rotten children. Uh, total adolescence and just, just want to do whatever they want, whatever they want. Tear off their clothes and run around and take drugs and do whatever you want. And just, we're going to live different from our parents and all. And it sort of typifies the end of this, this Canaanic mindset uh, of autonomy and independency from God. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. I will not have you. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Don't restrain me. That's the Canaanic mindset. And that's the world we live in. Well, there's certain characteristics of it. You can see it. I have A, B, C, and D. Let me, let me tell you what they are at the beginning. Restlessness is, uh, is the first. Second is uh, closeness without community. Third is a culture, physical beauty, pleasure, characteristics. These are not uh, uh, total uh, in, in, in exhaustive description of the Canaanic mindset, uh, this Canaanic city. And finally, pride. 
uh, is D. Well, the restlessness. What do we say about that? Well, Cain, in having rejected God and went out from his presence, what? He became a restless wanderer, even at heart, after he settled down to build a city. That's what the text says in 13 uh, through 17. And, and, and we've read that. Uh, God said, you're, you're cursed and you'll be judged and you will be a restless wanderer. God curses Cain. You know, if you read carefully Genesis 3, God had already cursed uh, Satan in, in chapter 3, verse 14, for having uh, the serpent, for having tempted uh, Eve there in the garden. And then the ground was cursed in verse 17 of chapter 3. The Eretz, the ground, and now Cain. In chapter 4, verse 11, uh, you are cursed. Well, verse number 2, he was restless. He was restless. He was, he was restless because he was rootless. There were no roots. There were no foundation. Another metaphor. Rootless. You see, our deep roots and our deepest roots can only be found in God alone. In Him we have our being. We live, move, and have our being. And if they're not in Him, then we're simply vagabonds. Another word for wanderers. That's what we are. Restless. 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 Boy, that's a word that describes the culture and the world which we live in and so many of us live in. There's a restlessness. When all seems well, there's just a, there's a turmoil and a stirring within our hearts. People that you, you know, there's not the peace of God because there's not peace with God. A restlessness. There ought not to be. It ought not to be in your life. If you know Christ, the Lord is Savior. There ought to be a deep, settled peace, a sense of joy and calm, a Sabbath rest, if you will, but not in Cain. Not in the culture in which you and I live, a culture within a culture. Our deepest roots are found only in Him. Well, Augustine wrote, and I have your quote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. He's right. He's absolutely right. You can run from this and run to that. Remember our study in Ecclesiastes? Solomon, the wisest one who ever lived, said, You know, I wanted to test and find out what was the meaning in life. And, uh, you know, he had the time, he had the intelligence, he had the wealth, he had the opportunity, and he tried it all. And at the end of it, he said, it's all a zero. At the end of the day, it's a zero. None of this satisfies, none of it. It is only found in God alone. At the end of this book, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of men. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Well... Perhaps, number three, this helps us understand the frantic activity of our day. Perhaps it is. You can't stop for even, even a moment to, uh, to do so. We need to cover up our lack of roots, restlessness. Restlessness. You know, God, it's one of the great reasons that God uh, developed the seven-day week. You know, people have tried to change that through the years. The Soviets tried to make it, I think it was a ten-day week. Couldn't do it. God is so stamped on our being and in his world, the seven-day period of time known as one week. And, of course, it's modeled after the original creation week. And a big part of that is when the seventh day came, God rested. It didn't mean he was tired, but he ceased from his labor, and he set it as a pattern for us. 
And it's important for you that, that one, at least one day a week is very different than the other days. As a part of that, you ought to break pace. Uh, you ought to worship. Worship ought to be the highlight of the week. I'm going to go hear the God's Word. You know, the Puritans had it right. What was church? It was a building with a book. And the pastor stood behind it and told the people what God's book said. And that was it. And they had it right. I'm going to go here. And then on that day, if it is this day, your day that's different from all that, it's a day of reflection. You look back and see where you've been. You see the ups and downs and the blessings, and you thank the Lord for that. You see the challenge. You see where you failed. You see your Lord, deal with that. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Pick me up again. I want to grow to be like Jesus. And then you look ahead and you, you pray for God's blessing on, your, on the work of your hands, upon your loved ones, upon your church. That God, you see how you stop. You rest. You cease the normal activity. Look back. Look forward. You see the unsaved can't do that. They're terrified. They don't want to stop. Keep going. Keep paddling. Keep paddling. Don't want to stop. Don't want to think, I'm going to be dead here. What's that? That's a horror thing. I don't want that. I don't think about it. Put me in a box. That's it. And I don't think when I went, I just, oh, man, what a, oh, I don't even think about that. You know how to do with that. Got laden with guilt, unless I have a hardened conscience. Can never stop. Ceaseless activity. God says, stop. Rest. Consider. Not Cain, though. Not Cain. Not the culture. He's a vagabond. There's no rest. Restless. But I'm reminded as Christians, our roots are in God. Our roots are in God. And we ought to stop and rest and reflect and find rest for our souls as well as for our bodies. Listen, if you do it, you'll be healthier, you'll live longer, you'll be happier, you'll probably be more productive. One thing I love about Chick-fil-A, not only do they make great shakes, and I try to stay away from them, but my granddaughter loves chick Chick-fil-A. You know, and the, and the cow says, eat more chicken, right? I love that. But they close. They have a godly CEO and founder. And so we, we won't be open on Sunday. We're going to give our people up. We just know they're going to be more productive. God has blessed that man. He's an old man, simple man. I've heard him speak down in Atlanta one time. I thought, what a blessed guy, you know? Stop one day. They ought not all be the same. My dad didn't know Christ. My dad worked every single day. And humanly, under God's, is it surprising? That's part of the reason he fell over dead at 54? I don't know. I don't know how that all works. But it's a factor. Stop, rest, relax, look ahead, pray, look where you've come. What do you want to do the rest of your days? Don't you love that Michigan ad? Don't like the state of Michigan at all. I've lived in Indiana too long. Days gone by. But that ad is unbelievable. Beautiful. That, that's a great company. You only get 25,000 mornings, it says. That's if you live a full life, what we call that. And they want you to spend some of them in Michigan, you know. That's beautiful, right? That beautiful ad. And, and the lakes are nice up there. But, uh, and if you're from Michigan, my apologies to you. But, uh, you know, relax and enjoy. They're saying some of our, our, our boating and some of our beaches and some of that kind of thing. Stop and relax. Restlessness. Second is B. Closeness. What's another characteristic of this Canaanic mindset? Uh, it's closeness without community. Cain, in rejecting God, sought to bring people around him. How do you do that? In two ways. In the text, verse 17, 
he uh, decides to have a son. He's going to have a child. Enosh. Enoch, I'm sorry. Enoch. Enoch. So he's going to build a city. He's going to surround it with people because there's an alienation, a vagabondness in his heart, a wandering, a restlessness. So I'll just get people around me. Hmm. It's not rocket science. So he has a child, right? How about that? Remember, Cain was the first human baby born. What a huge disappointment he must have been to his parents. Remember, God had said in, in 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, uh, the announcement, the seed of the woman, uh, she'll be the deliverer, right? And Eve believed God and thought that Cain was going to be that answer. Of course, we know later it was the Lord Jesus Christ who would be the answer to that, but she thought it would be Cain. She had all that hopes in that. Did your mother have a lot of hopes in you? You know, did you disappoint her? Shame on you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Say, so, well, I took after my father, that's why, you know. <laughs> they, imagine all the expectations. I've got a man-child. I think in that Genesis 4-1, she thought she had the promise. She said, I've got the answer here. He's going to deliver us. It's going to be great. He goes out and kills his brother. Now, I used to have some interesting fights with my brother. He was bigger than me, though. He helped me a lot. He saved me a lot. When people, guys be running after me, my brother, I know he's stupid, don't hurt him. <laughs> I was about that high. You know, I'd be riding my bike as fast as I can home. Couldn't get home fast enough. Peter Prosser, I don't even know if he's still living, but he used to chase me a lot. And, and a couple other guys. You know, you'd say names and things that probably you shouldn't have said. You know, <laughs> Something about their sister. You know, goofy stuff. Yeah, you know, just like boys growing up. What's, you know, but God grows them up. And if with His grace they get saved and become uh, godly and grow in grace. And I'm thankful for my... Cain killed his brother. Oh, we thought we had such... We thought you are going to be a doctor or a pastor or whatever. What a disappointment. What a disappointment, Cain. Some of you are saying, well, where did his wife come from? You know, that's, some people use that as a major objection to the trustworthiness of our Bible. Cain and Abel, and now Cain's getting married, or Cain's not married, but he has a baby with his wife. Well, what's that all about? What's that about? Verse 17. Well, remember I told you, in Hebrew style, it's a race to get through the insignificant material in Genesis to get to where he's going. So he covered like 800 years. And in Genesis, look at chapter 5, verse 4, just to tell you that after Seth was born, Adam, and, Adam lived 800 more years, he lived 930 real years, and he had other sons and daughters. And so they were fruitful coming from the hand of God, and their next generation was fruitful, and the next, and the next, and the next. And so it's not, again, rocket science. He married his sister, or a cousin, or a second cousin. Now, one man estimates with, with uh, birth rates at half of what we know in the United States, even half of that again, I think it was 0.5 uh, over those period of time. And let me quote, he says, um, uh, where did I go? Here it is. Adam may have seen, by the time he died, one million of his own descendants. Now, that's a family reunion. <laughs> you bring the hot dogs, I'll bring the beans, you know. <laughs> that's a bunch. And they're a bunch of people, and they're multiplying faster than rabbits 
coming from the hand of God without the genetic drag and the issues there and, uh, and fertility and all of that producing and filling the world. So Cain marries a near kin. And you go like, marry your sister? Yuck. I remember when I first heard this and I looked at my three sisters and I go like, oh, please, no. And my sisters are wonderful girls, Jan, Kim, and Lori, you know. But, uh, but, you know, when you think of it, it's not too odd. You know, like uh, uh, Cain might have said to his uh, mother, like, Where, where'd you come from? Well, I came from your father. Oh, yeah, God took a rib and built a woman and, he, and brought me to, and that began. Okay. Oh, all right. So, uh, see, it, it's not as odd. It's, it's, it's all your context that you're thinking. Oh, you came from dad? Okay, this Okay, well, yeah, she's my second cousin. Or a sister. We don't. We're not told, and that's where that came. Don't let that ever rob the trustworthy of God's word. They were genetically powerful. We we are at the utter dragnet of generic genetic inherited diseases, and you better not marry anyone closer than a second cousin, or your kids are going to be blue blood and have all kinds of issues. The pr- probability really increases. Remember the hemophiliacs in the royal family. I'll marry my sister. We'll keep the crown in the family here, and they wonder, like, how come we're bleeders? You know, like, that's the problem. Now, each generation, there's more and more the breaking down the, uh, of, the, of the genetic code and the propensity. We all have, you all have recessive problems. Did you know that? So I have more problems than that. No, you have genetic recessive problems. Your dominant ones cover that, but they're all there. And if they connect with another one like that, guess what? What is this that we've given birth to? That's right. And so Cain could do that. By the time of Abraham, he could marry his half-sister, you know, and be all right. But comes 500 years later to Moses, Moses says, no near of kin. I mean, that's how fast we're going downward in this whole genetic issue of, uh, of life. And so that, uh, that, that takes care of that. Well, the building of a city. So how's he going to have this closeness without community? I'm going to have a family. I'm going to have a son. Second, he builds a city, verse 17b. Yet cities uh, are some of the loneliest places in all the world, are they not? Their closeness, oh man, you stack them. You stack them one on top of the other in a city. Have you ever lived in a, in a city? I mean, we live in a suburb city. Some of you are in the city, you know. Uh, and you just stack them, and you're just like, aren't they just hug? That's what Philadelphia is, right? City of brotherly love. They just, can I hu- have a hug here? I need a hug today. You better hold on to your wallet. <laughs> Somebody borrowed my car, didn't ask permission, didn't even need the keys. It was amazing. I came up to go back to my class on a Monday morning at 6 in the morning, and it was gone. They finally found it a number uh, a while later in Alany. I guess that's where they lived. And I guess they continued to need some of the parts of my car. <laughs> and I hope they're still using that radio. I paid extra for that. But, uh, yeah, you can, you can live in cities, and they're some of the loneliest places in all the world. I mean, you stack depraved, lost sinners, not all of them, but you stack them on top of each other like that. There's a desire to want to have community, but it doesn't happen. Those are, are things that are not just spatial. Hey, let's move close and we'll have community. It doesn't happen, right? And that's what Cain thought. I'll build a city here. It'll help with this, this vagabond heart of mine, this wandering, this restlessness. 
Oftentimes, uh, cities are filled with, with great crime and death. Not just cities. It happens other places, too. I know that. But unsaved, degenerate people stacked up on top of each other. Wow. Well, the problem with godless cities, here's the word, is uh, I hate the city. No, I don't. I enjoy going in the city. Enjoy getting out. Yeah, the problem with godless cities is not the cities. It's the godless. That's the problem. And the compounding of depravity in the proximity of others. Living in open rebellion and, and autonomy and independent of God. Striving that. Well, closeness without community. In this city of belonging here in this world. Well, certain, a C is, the third character is culture, physical beauty, pleasure. You see, uh, these are the essential, uh, the essence of the Canaanic city without God. It is an attempt to create a heaven on earth. That's what it is. Music and some of the beautiful music and architecture and theater and plays and museums and parks and, and beautiful architectural buildings are beautiful. Waterways and bridges, spectacular. And in and of themselves, they're great. But uh, as a statement of alienation, to live and create a heaven here on earth is sheer rebellion and will never satisfy the restless heart of the Canaanic mindset. That is, the mind without God. Well, the city, one, is advanced. You have to admit yeah, this is the oldest statement of the earliest civilization. It, they have agriculture, metallurgy, the development of musical instrument and how to play it. They have the arts. All these things are, and these things are not bad in themselves. One man writes in regards to the arts, it is legitimate to participate in the arts and to enjoy beautiful things if you can afford them. Provided such participation and engagement is in obedience to God. And it results in thankfulness to Him for such beauty that God has given us an appreciation for that. In architecture, to see something, to me, that has balance. Dave, you could give us a lecture on that, being an architect. Balance and symmetry and a lot of glass. And, you know, you go to Chicago and you see the skyline. It's beautiful to see that. Uh, beautiful. You know, you look at something that's asymmetrical and you're like, wow, that's ugly. That building's a mistake. You want to look for something, at least my way of thinking, balance and beauty and, and all of that. There's not, nothing wrong with that. Or in a symphony or a beautiful piece, Beethoven's Ninth or something like that, or some of the great paintings of the world, nothing wrong with that. Some of the great theaters and, 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 and theatrics and plays, nothing wrong with that if they're brought under the submission of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and they're enjoyed for the beauty of it. Beauty of it. Yeah. I uh, once was out in Los, Los Angeles and I went to, uh, uh, Faith and I went to uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur Shepherd's Conference, a great conference. I enjoyed being out there twice, and, and as a part of it, we part, took part in the worship on Sunday morning, and I noticed, I was surprised by it, they had a classical guitarist uh, as a part of the morning worship and played a beautiful piece, and it went on for, I, I think, like six or seven minutes, and he just played. There was nothing audible, no, no music song and all that, and, uh, and, and so on, and so I asked one of the staff men, I was, I was surprised that you would take that period of time and play something like that that wasn't so-called sacred music, you know, secular, sacred. And he said to me, no, we have the, we have the view that 
that anything that's done to the glory of God, anything that's done well, is a worship, and, and if it's done to the, with gratefulness to God, is fitting. And I said, you know what, that's right. That was done beautifully. It wasn't a hymn, wasn't a worship song, wasn't a spiritual song or any of that. But it was beautiful. You're like, wow, that was beautiful. Praise to God. And, and, and God has given us that appreciation. So the arts in and of themselves are fine and, and for us to appreciate them. Don't think I'm not saying that. The thing is that we need to uh, resist loving the gifts of these arts and the expression of them more than we love the gift giver, God, who has given them. Listen, God is beautiful. The music, when you enter heaven, when you're dying, and if I'm there or if I'm going ahead of you, I mean, when you're slipping away, you, have, you, you can't imagine the beauty of the music of heaven. I don't know if it's all the time or what, but you can't imagine how beautiful that is going to be. Or the beauty and the splendor of heaven. God who had made the spectrum, so we see the Roygebib color, color spectrum, right? We only see a very tiny bit of the spectrum. There is so much more in other dimensions. We're just going to be like blown away. God is a God of art and culture and beauty and music and, and all of that. Don't think he's against that. Look at the sunset. Look at how he paints the sky every night and the seasonal changes. Listen, our God is a God of beauty, and he wants us to appreciate that. And when man uses culture to express the wonder of the lordship of God and music and on canvas and theater and literature and all of these things, it's to God's glory. But when man does it in alienation and in rebellion to God, trying to create a sort of safe haven here on earth, it's utterly detestable. And that's what Cain is a part of here. You see the cities advanced. Number two, physical beauty and charm is, is expressed in the names of Lamech's wives. His wife Ada's name in Hebrew means beauty, physical beauty, and Zillah. Her name means loveliness, referring to probably her hair and its covering, as the best we can tell. And it's supposed that he evidently chose women for their physical attractions rather than their moral and spiritual beauty. Well, God's not against that. You know, if you're not married and you think you want to and say, well, I guess I can't pick a, a beautiful woman. No, God's not against that. But beauty, as Faith and I have always tried to, uh, to teach our children, is, is from the heart outward. And someone who can be sort of plain, the world would say, outward, but has a love for the Lord inward, it'll radiate and make them beautiful. It's the beauty from the heart outward on the face. That's the beauty. That's real beauty. And if you want to see God's uh, opinion on that subject, uh, you can look at 1 Peter 3, 4. Did we put that up? 1 Peter 3, 4. Look at, Peter says, instead of this worldly beauty, the context, verse 4, the, our, uh, the beauty of a woman should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. You know, not simply what you can paste on and, and do what you can on that. That's okay. The men appreciate that. But uh, real beauty is from the inside out. Uh, yet, in this culture with Cain, it seemed to be all the outside, all the physical. And we see so much of that. I see that with a lot of young girls today. And the, and the emphasis on their bodies, their bodies, their bodies, that's not right. 
It's not right. It should be their soul, their heart, their godliness, their character, and not their body. You see? And you correct that and help them and teach them that. It's from the heart out. That's what makes beauty. It's the character. Okay? And three, in actuality, uh, as I said, it's man's attempt to, to build a heaven on earth without the Lord. Rebellion against God is its creed, and eternity in hell is its prospect. That is a society without God. Culture, physical beauty, pleasure, wow. And the, the D in the last characteristic is pride. Lemek's words of self-sufficient, hard-hearted boasting of the killing of a man, well, they're filled with egotism. They're filled with pride. He's a humanistic and man-centered to the core. And his poetry reveals it. And incidentally, his poetry there, in verse 23, Ada, he, as he, he cites, as the oldest um, poetry on record. And it was probably put into a song. Pride. Pride. Somebody said there's a, uh, there was a placard for many years at, in Washington, D.C. It said, welcome to Washington, D.C., the greatest city in all the world. Wow. I think Babylon said that once, didn't he? Or at least the king there did. And he went roving around like a wild animal for seven years. Pride, pride, pride of the city. Pride, self-centered, boasting. His idea here is, okay, uh, you know, God uh, uh, put a, a curse on Cain. If anyone killed him, uh, this, uh, there, it would be dealt with sevenfold. And it's like Lemek is saying in his poetry, in his song, Listen, I don't need God. I'll take business, I'll take care of business up to 77 times. I'm independent, I'm arrogant, I'm pride, I'm self-made, I'm really something. I'm man, watch me roar. That's sort of what he's saying. Well, that's uh, the Canaanic mindset. That's the secular society, the city in which you and I live in, and uh, it's everywhere. A, couple, a number of years ago, um, in 1933, there was a document that was written called the Humanistic uh, Manifesto. Uh, it, uh, it was a document that has formed in many ways um, uh, public school education and the culture at large. John Dewey, the founder of the, uh, one of the key shapers of modern-day uh, teacher education and state schools and all that, was one of the signers of this and it is uh, atheistic, it is, uh, it is pagan uh, to the core in its tenets, and yet this is a statement of belief of, uh, of the world in which you and I live in, this uh, earthly city. Let me just read a couple of the tenets. The first one is religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Assumption number one, self-existing, not created. Number two, humanism believes that man is part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of the continuous process of evolution. That's our second tenet. Another one, I'm going to skip down through. We are convinced that the time has passed for theism, that's belief in God, deism, modernism, and the several varieties uh, of these things to be done with. Uh, another one is religion consists, yeah, I'll skip that one. Uh, the ninth tenet is, in the place of the old attitudes, meaning biblical Christianity, involved in worship and prayer, 
The humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. Uh, have you heard social justice lately? Same thing, same idea. Uh, the tenth tenet of uh, the statement, it follows that there will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. And then uh, the last tenet, believing that religion must work increasingly for joy in living. Religious, humanist aim to foster the creative in men and to encourage achievements that will add to the satisfactions of life. And in conclusion, so stand the thesis of, of religious humanism. Though we consider the religious forms of our ideas of our fathers no longer adequate. Talking about biblical Christianity there. The quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. Man is at last becoming aware that he, is, he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams. And that he has within himself the power for its achievement. He must seek intelligence and will to the task. That was 1931, uh, 1933. In 1977, there at Antioch College, I've been at that college in Ohio, and I've seen this document. It's in, bra it's in, in a brass uh, container there at uh, Antioch College. They came out with humanistic uh, manifesto number two. And it was just more deplorable and more rebellious than even that statement. The statement of the foundation of the culture I see the, us living out now in our day, that you and I swim and live and, and, and raise our families and, and serve the Lord in. It is a city within the city, the greater city, lost, kinetic, godless, autonomous, independent, going out from the presence of God. And yet bearing these four, at least these four characteristics, restlessness, oh, they're close, but no community, culture, physical beauty, pleasure, and pride, to name just a few. But there is another city, the smaller city, not the few and the proud, but the few, the chosen. And that we find in verses 25 and 26 it is the city of God, and it's characterized by a people dependent upon God, Wholly different, marching to a wholly different drumbeat. This is God's family. And to be a part of this family, you must be born a second time. For all of us are born into the first one, naturally. What Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. And that is to coming to realize that you're a sinner lost, that Christ died for sin as the Lamb of God, to make the payment that you and I could not make and to agree with him that you're a sinner lost, and to receive him, invite him to be your Lord and Savior, turning from your sin, counting the cost of discipleship. There is a cost, you know. Sometimes we make it like easy believism. Look, when you have opportunity to share the gospel with people, and you think they come right to the precipice of trusting Christ, tell them they can't do it. You can't do it. You have not counted the cost. What's that mean? There's a cost to living and serving in a, a, a godless pagan world as a part of a smaller city or community. The people that love the Lord with all their heart. 
It may require your resources. It may require your time. It may require more, even your life. It costs many that life. You can't do it. You must count the cost first. Don't be so quick to count noses and fingers and hands raised up and, and count the cost. And if God continues to work and draw them, then let it be of him. And he'll do that. This is a people not independent, not going out from the present, but dependent on God. This is God's family. Again, verse 25, Adam lay with his wife, with Eve again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And look at her. Look at her words. God. Her words are filled with God. They're saying, God has granted me another child. In the place of Abel, since Cain killed him, I can see a tear in my Bible in that statement right there. My son killed the other. Gave me, God, God gave me. God gave me one. You see, God in his preeminence is the first quality of, of this, uh, this city of God, characterized by a people dependent on God. God in his preeminence. These are the starting points. This is a society focused upon the Lord. Eva said, God has granted me another son, Seth. None in Cain's lineage ever spoke like this. Look through Genesis. You'll never see it. No, it's, it's like this to God. But uh, uh, Eve was wonderfully redeemed and uh, believed God was now going to answer, and he would through this son. It would be the line to which Jesus would come. God has done this. God has granted me. What a huge contrast. The godless culture begins with man. He's a big M for man. The other begins with God. He believed God's promise of a future seed of the woman at Genesis 3.15. If the first family is a city belonging here to the world here and now, then this is a city that longs for God. She thought it would be the deliverer. The second quality of this second family, of which you are part of if you're born again, is they have a proper view of man. I don't want to read too much into this, but it's true. Man is weak and small and frail, and sometimes I'll say puny he is to describe it. Well, how do we know that? Well, it's seen, number one, in the name Enosh, or Enos, where it means frail one, weak one. Seth named his son. He was so aware of his own weakness and a man's frailty and puniness that he gave a, that name for his son. Every time he called him for dinner, hey, you frail one, come and get a hot dog. I mean, just think of it. Every time he said it, conjuring up in the horror of their mind the absolute weakness and frailty, the moralness of man. It's seen it. You don't see that in the other family, the other society, the other city. It's a seesaw theology, you know. When, as we, when we view God, when we, when we lift up God, man shrinks. That's the way it ought to be. John the Baptist, you must... He must increase. I must decrease. And so when we lift up God and see him for what he really is in our perspective, great and awesome, sovereign, almighty, all-loving, kind, merciful, but he's the judge. And he will render judgment upon all who have ever lived according to his word. When we see him for who he is, then we see who we are. Not much. What is man that thou art mindful of? Psalm 8, the psalmist had it right. We about disappear. Who are we when you compare yourself to God? But the other way of the teeter-totter or the season, when man is lifted up, 
in most universities and, and in the culture and all that. Man is, oh, he's great. Aren't we wonderful? Ronnie Descartes. Man is the measure of all things. God was not impressed with that. God is the measure of all things. He'll define all things, not man. Man is not the measure. You're not the measure of all things. Truth is not relative. Truth is true, and it's always true. It's not like, well, I feel this. It really doesn't matter what you feel. It's black or it's white. It's right or it's wrong. According to the dictates of God's Word. And when man is lifted up, uh, the measure of all things, God just about disappears. Is it any wonder in America that they tossed God out in the early 60s? Remember that? Some of you remember that. What a contrast. Bob Albright told me, Bob is older, of course, retired, uh, chief uh, uh, chemist at Roman Haas for 38 years. He told me the other week, unsolicited, he just said, you know, when I was a, in my early years of public school, they spent an hour each day reading us the Scriptures. I said, come on, Bob. He said, no, that's, how, that's where I learned my Bible. That's where I began to fear God. My teacher would read and then teach us, and we had to learn the Bible. In public school? Can't be. Can't be. Yes. Well, in the 60s, God got expelled. Go down to the principal's office, you're out. My. And who was that gal who, uh, the atheist? Yeah, Madam Murray O'Hara in the Abington uh, School District, where Faithy graduated from in Philadelphia. And uh, Faith's father was a godly man, called her up on the phone and had a few words to say to her. He did. That would be pop right there. God expelled. Is it any wonder? Now we need policemen and more in our schools. And the whole thing's crumbling apart. No, we just pray for a revival, that God would do something, right? And that's the culture we live in. It is. Man, when he's made great, God disappears. Not really, but in man's imagination. God is always right here. And finally, this family, Seth, is characterized by what? Worship and dependence on God. We see that. For the last statement, and at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. It's a statement that refers to public worship. Listen, public worship ought to be the most important thing you do every week. Your private worship leading up to that every day as you're reading your Bible and as you're praying. Public worship. You gather with God's people. You hear His Word. You sing. You pray. You fellowship. And by you being here, encourages others to be here. That's what Hebrews says. We're an encouragement. We're provoking one another to godliness and good works. And here they are worshiping. What a different community. They're calling on the Lord for salvation and things beyond. This is a community that loves the Lord. They've escaped the godless city of Vanity Fair. That's where we live. Did you know that? We live in the city of Vanity Fair. I have in my hand the final address from one of my most esteemed uh, professors. Uh, I call him a colleague. He's now in heaven, uh, Dr. Rembert Carter. I know he was Faithy's professor of history and Stevens. And uh, I'm so glad for this, uh, this is last address that I have it uh, in, uh, in type. Uh, and he deals with this being a historian. 
receiving his PhD at Edinburgh University uh, with uh, the Kinetic Mind Revisited in this whole theme uh, it really deals with. Uh, let me give you just some excerpts, and then we'll do lessons, and we'll be done. Uh, Dr. Uh, Rembert Carter put it this way. <clears throat> Uh, I believe that every civilization since Cain has been secular and anti-God. To illustrate our point, let us look at the world at the first century. Without exaggeration, the period just before and after the advent of Christianity was in the greatest crisis of world history. Moral conditions defied descriptions. Uh, family life was uh, degraded. We read of men loaning wives to their friends. Human life had no value. And in the pages of the best-known writers of the time, we find accounts of terrible things. Aristotle recommended abortion and infanticide for restricting the birth rate. In Plato's Republic, illegitimate or deformed children were to be put to death. Slavery was ever-present and served as a basis of common economic order. A slave was not a person but a thing. A slave's testimony could, not, could only be given under torture. And the most shocking and repulsive amusement ever devised by de degenerate human beings was that of the amphitheater. Men fought and died in order to amuse the crowd. A fallen gladiator was dragged out by a hook through death's gate. There he was stripped and finally put to death if he had not already expired. A contemporary observer wrote that, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's Paul. The first century world was so corrupt that God looked down from heaven and he said, It is enough. I will send my son. And so Jesus was born. Here he lived for almost 30 years. And then he ministered and taught for three and a half more years. Finally, he was crucified on a cross of shame. The divine solution to a sinful world was the death of the sinless son of God. But the cross was not the end. It was only the beginning because Jesus rose from the dead. Now people everywhere can hear about God's great cure for the Canaanic world. It is belief in Jesus Christ, Son of God, alive forevermore. Now move on to the year 1987 when a professor from the University of Chicago published an amazing book, The Closing of the American Mind. His thesis was that almost every student entering the university today believes that truth is relative. There are no eternal values. There are no absolute foundations for right or wrong. Alan Bloom asserted that we are left with a new morality of values empty of any sort of ethical imperatives. Man is in total rebellion against God. And when men do not love their creator, they will not love their fellow men either. Respect for life has continued to deteriorate. To illustrate, he writes, after World War II was over, a war's crime tribunal was convened. Ten Nazi leaders were indict in indicted for their encouraging and compelling abortions. The court considered it to be a crime against humanity. Today, in the United States, such doctors grow wealthy by operating abortion mills. We are reminded of a first-century pagan philosopher named Seneca who once wrote to his mother and thanked her that she had the foresight not to abort such a brilliant son as he was. Childhood has disappeared in America. Twelve- and thirteen-year-old girls are among the highest-paid models in America. 
There is a rise in child crime and the distinctions between punishment of adult and children is disappearing. In his important book, The Disappearance of Childhood, Neil Postman argued that the media has eradicated all the distinction between adults and children. All the doors to the adult world that were once closed to children are now open through the windows of the TV set. Most children have unlimited access to the TV tube. The disintegration of the family in our time can largely be attributed to the secular humanistic ethos, which I've called, and he called, the Canaanic mind. There is an amorality, an amoral mentality that is only hostile to the family. The only help for the Canaanic problem is to be found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus appointed 12 men to begin the task heralding this good news. But Judas, one of the twelve, developed a Canaanic mindset and committed suicide. The other elevens became missionaries preaching in Jerusalem, Caesarea, Samaria, Russia, Spain, France, Mesopotamia, Persia, Ethiopia, Britain, and faraway India. One was beheaded. Two died by crucifixion. Two others were flayed alive. Another was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. The only one who lived into an old age was the human author of our text we're going to look at here in a moment. He was tortured but imprisoned, referring to John the Beloved. Thus, 11 great men began the task Jesus gave them, and they all died trying to finish it. Finally, Dr. Carter wrote, I want to take you on one final field trip. Let us journey to the campus of Yale University and the Rare Benick Rare Book Library, a collection of some of the most ancient and valuable books in all the world. In front of that library lies an impression, impressive sunken garden reflecting a worldview that I call kinetic. The garden is constructed of marble. One corner of that has a large marble pyramid symbolizing time. Another corner has a huge donut-shaped structure standing on its side, symbolizing energy. In the third corner, perched precariously on one tip, is a huge dice about to topple this way or that. This is the symbol of chance. A visitor thus is confronted, he's confronted with a representation of the worldview of modern man. That is, a self-existing universe consisting of energy, time, and chance. In such a view of the world, the individual feels small. He has no significance, and his destiny is simply to be a part of a blind, uncaring fate. Not far from the Benick Library is a simple fountain in honor of a Yale graduate who in the 1930s turned his back on a huge fortune in order to set out as a missionary for Jesus Christ. This alumnus from Yale had evidently read the scripture, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and it's this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof But he who does the will of God abides forever. In his final words today, as he was speaking, the world is still Canaanic. 
Its lifestyle is worldly. Its mind is set on secularism. Rebellion against God is its creed. And eternity in hell is its prospect. Only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ can reverse the imminent destruction coming. Then he writes, we pray that you will make the same decision as Bill Borden of Yale made nearly 80 years ago when you escape the kinetic mindset. Thousands may be challenged for the Son of God, and may God help us do it. Rembert Carter. Well, closing, and I know we're out of time, let me just give you these quick and we'll be done. Number one, lessons for our life. Recognize the world we live in, for there are two different cities with two different loves. It's a city within the city, the bigger city, and then God's family, the city, the smaller of the two. Recognize that. I see it everywhere I go. Every song I I listen to is one or the other. It fits into that. Uh, It's everywhere. Beware of it. It's open rebellion against God. Number two, number two, if you are born again, you will reveal that you have escaped the first city by your love for the Lord. You'll reveal it. If you don't love the Lord, you're still, you've not escaped. You're still in the first city, the city of Cain. But if you love the Lord with all your heart and soul, it's a great measure that you've been saved, and you're part of the second humanity. Number three, remember sin distorts our reasoning ability, causing us to wander away from God. It causes us to have, in Romans 1, a reprobate mind. Be careful about it. You know what hell is, actually? People say, well, how can God be loving and send people to hell? People say that to me. Have you ever heard that? God is loving. Oh, he's loving. How could You know what hell is? God gives people just what they want. Yeah. You, you want that? You want that sin? You can have it till it comes out your nose and he lets them go. Remember that with the quail? They want a quail. You want quail? Did I hear quail? Here it comes. And it came out their nostrils. That's a picture of hell. You won't want me. You don't want to do it. You want that sin. You want this. You got it forever. And you don't want me. You got that forever. See, God gives people up. He, you want it. You got it forever in a place of hell. Yeah, number four. Be aware our world is in rebellion and striving to build a world without God. The very United Nations Charter said that uh, never a prayer should be made in the name of the Lord Jesus. Never. We're sectarian. Never. Well, that ended uh, any hopes for world peace there on the East River, right? And number five and last. Number five. Perhaps you are still part of this godless city today. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ the Lord as Savior. You can realize that you're a sinner lost. You must be born again. If not, you're still part of the Canaanic city, the city in rebellion. Oh, come to Christ today and be saved. There's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's the name of the Lord Jesus. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall we do that? Well, love not the world. Shall we stand and be dismissed?